You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you. Good morning. Well, it was the spring of 1999. My wife picked me up from Salem Hospital, where I worked in the pathology lab. Um, Once I buckled my seatbelt, she said, we should go out to a Mexican restaurant tonight. And I looked at her suspiciously because we really didn't have the money to do that, being newlyweds. And we were pinching our pennies while I was waiting to hear back from one more medical school. Spontaneous dinners were very rare. Spontaneous dinners out. You see, this was the third year that I applied to medical schools. In that time, I had submitted secondary applications, traveled for interviews, ended up on medical school admissions waiting lists, and I wasn't too discouraged because I knew that getting into medical school was super competitive, and I figured that it was just a matter of time until I got in. I mean, I felt that God had called me to be a doctor, and if that was right, then I shouldn't have anything to worry about. I looked at my wife and said, sure, let's go out, but do we have money in the budget for this? She told me to look in the glove compartment. In it was a small envelope from the medical school I was waiting on. We all know what small envelope means. I didn't get in. I looked at my wife and said, well, I guess I'm gonna be a children's pastor then. Definitely a good time to go out for enchiladas verdes. Okay, let's back up a little bit. How did I go from God's call me to be a doctor to I guess I'm gonna be a children's pastor? An even more important question, if I was a children's pastor, how did I end up here as a sociologist and now the director of the Center for Academic Excellence? Well, in order to answer that question, we can look at Psalm 34, and I won't read it all here, but um, over and over in that Psalm, the Psalmist, presumably King David, talks about how God faithfully shows up when he needs help. God met me more than halfway. He freed me from my anxious fears. If your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. God pays for each slave's freedom. No one who runs to him loses out. So how can David be so sure that God is there? I mean, if you read the Psalms, you know that not everything is all unicorns and rainbows. There are Psalms of lament, Psalms pleading for help. Did you know that there's cursing Psalms as well? In light of all of that, how can there be psalms that also express a trust that God is faithful to be there in times of need, when things don't make sense and when things go terribly wrong? For that, I think verse 8 gives us some semblance of an answer. In the message, it says, open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. And here's how it's worded in the New Living Translation, probably something you're a little more familiar with. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. In other words, what I believe the psalmist is saying is try God. Just try him out. You'll see he's good. He's faithful. Now, it's one thing to read this or to hear other people talk about God's faithfulness. It's a whole other thing to take that leap for yourself. What if it doesn't work? What if what I thought was real isn't? What if I take a leap and there's no one there to catch me or no one there to be with me when I'm at the bottom of myself? The nice thing is that the psalmist isn't saying that we need to bungee jump off of high bridge in order to trust God. It says taste, see, take a little bit, just take a little step 
and see. And maybe next time, take a bigger one. Give God a chance to show up. Now, I know that this type of thinking may sound a lot like make you feel good spirituality or a prosperity gospel. And it can even sound like I'm dismissing the very concrete realities of pain, suffering, and trauma in the world. Rather, the more I tasted and saw, the more I've come to trust God to be faithful, even at times when things don't make sense. When people who should have been faithful weren't, when you do everything you're supposed to do and things still don't turn out the way you expected them to. Where does my story with trusting God begin? Well, growing up, my family didn't have a lot of money. I watched my parents trust God from month to month, from year to year for our finances. There were even some times when we weren't sure if my dad was gonna have a job or not. Yet every time bills came due, they trusted that God would take care of us, and he did. There were other ways I watched my parents trust in God's faithfulness, and when I was much older, I came to realize the ways they even trusted God in spite of the discrimination and racism they faced as immigrants. My dad's from the Philippines, my mom's from Portugal. And as a mixed race couple with mixed race children, the idea of tasting and seeing that God is good, though, didn't become real and concrete for me until I was on my own. I remember when it happened. It was a couple of months before that day when my wife picked me up from work and I found out that I didn't make it into med school. At that time, Aaron was pregnant with our first child and we figured that we could have save quite a bit of money if we used cloth diapers and washed them ourselves instead of buying disposable diapers after the baby was born. I mentioned we were pinching our pennies, right? There was only one problem. We didn't own a washer and a dryer, and we couldn't afford one. As we talked about wanting a washer and dryer, I remembered a story Dr. Richard Resnick, one of my chemistry professors here at Asbury, shared about a guy named George Mueller. If you don't know who George Mueller is, look him up. He's got a fascinating story. In short, he was a German missionary to London who eventually opened orphanages in the mid to late 1800s to keep children from being exploited. Mueller's financial model was to not do any fundraising. Instead, he prayed for God to provide and simply believed God would, and God did provide through spontaneous and free will offerings. One story tells of a morning when there was no food left for the Mueller's and the 300 children in the orphanage. Mueller sat the children down for breakfast and he thanked God for the food he would provide that morning. After the prayer, there was a knock at the door. A local baker had woken up early in the morning with a sense that the orphanage would need food. So he baked three batches of bread to give to the orphanage. No sooner had the baker left and there was another knock at the door. A milkman's cart had broken down in front of the orphanage and the milk would go bad sitting out in the street and he asked if the orphanage could use the milk. There was just enough for everybody. I relayed that story to Aaron and said, hey God, it'd be nice if we had a washer and dryer. I wasn't really serious about it. Now, Aaron and I never gave that you know, prayer a second thought. Well, a few weeks later, Aaron gets a call from one of her aunts who lives in Oregon, who she really doesn't have a close relationship with and doesn't really talk to a lot. And I wasn't paying attention to the phone call when Aaron put her hand over the phone saying, Henry, it's like, you'll never believe this. My aunt wants to know if we want a washer and dryer for free. All I could do at the moment was just stare at her. I, was, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It's like, my aunt's getting remarried and they have an extra washer and dryer and she wants to know if we want them. And her fiance is even willing to bring them over to our apartment in his truck. 
Well, I know it sounds silly and it sounds superficial, but in that moment, I knew that God was saying to us, I'm here. I know that you really didn't expect me to show up, but here I am. Now, I'm not saying that God is some celestial vending machine and will give us anything we ask for, but in that moment, God's faithfulness became something real for me. I wasn't just watching my parents or some people around me talking about God showing up. I wasn't just reading the Bible about God's faithfulness. I was experiencing it for myself. God decided to show up in a moment that couldn't be anything other than God to let me know that he cared, that he was good, that he is faithful. When Aaron picked me up from work a few short months later and I found out that I didn't get into med school, although it didn't make sense at the time, I was able to trust that God was still in control, was still faithful, and was still good. I knew that I'd be okay, and I pivoted to the, do the other thing that I had enjoyed doing up, and, up until that point, which was working in children's ministry. Since that day in the car, I've had many opportunities to taste and see that God is good in so many different ways. And the more he's shown up, the more I've trusted him to show up. One time our transmission on our minivan went out and we had no money to get it fixed. I filled in for a friend as a kids camp speaker, not expecting to get paid. And the surprise honorarium I received was the exact amount we needed to fix our van. When I was let go from my first children's pastor position by a senior pastor who belittled and bullied me, I wasn't sure how long I'd be unemployed. And a few weeks later, I had an interview and was offered a position where I was able to grow in my leadership and see the capital C church from outside a US context. And after five years there, I felt a sense that I had reached the end of my time working in a church and had a desire to go back to school. So we trusted God. We packed up our belongings and moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where we're originally from, with no jobs waiting for us in 2010, which was around the peak of the recession caused by the housing crisis. Soon after we arrived, Erin connected with a college friend, which led to her landing a job a few weeks later with a salary and benefits that supported us while I went back to school. When I finished my MA in 2014, we decided to move to Lexington. Again, with no jobs waiting for us but with a strong sense that God would have our backs. It so happened that Asbury didn't have anyone teaching sociology, so I was able to begin teaching here. And, pick up, and I picked up some other part-time teaching at UK and EKU. And at the same time, Erin was able to keep working remotely for her job that she had in California. Over the course of the next few years, I worked my way through the PhD program in sociology at UK. And when it came time for me to finish the program, defend my dissertation, and look for a job, the world was in the middle of a pandemic, and few universities were hiring professors. At that time, we had a sense that God was asking us to trust him to stay in Lexington. And since we had tasted and seen God to be good in all the moves leading up to our settling in Lexington, we trusted that God would again be faithful, and he was. I was able to continue my time as a graduate research assistant for one more semester, followed by a brief time at the Kentucky Department for Public Health, working on COVID-related matters, and soon afterward, Asbury was looking for a new director of the Center for Academic Excellence. And now in my current position, I'm able to combine the administrative and pastoral skills from my time as a children's pastor with my current work as a professor and expertise in educational inequalities to create and facilitate programs and services to support you all. Now, does this mean that all my problems have gone away? That I'll have answers or explanations for the sexual abuse I experienced as a kid? 
that life will all of a sudden make sense? No, that's not what this means. But I continue to open my mouth and open my eyes to taste and see God's goodness, God's faithfulness. Because when God shows up in those moments, then I can have faith that God is good and faithful in all of the moments. I can have faith that there's a good end to this story, a reality beyond this one, where God makes everything right. Creation is renewed, humanity is restored, and evil is unmade. And in the meantime, the psalmist sets this invitation before me. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. And I invite you to do the same. You just might be surprised. Good morning. I'm so grateful, God, uh, for this opportunity to share my story with you about what I've learned about finding rest in Jesus. Let me begin by asking all of you a rhetorical question. When you are weary from your study, relationships, and the cares of life, or when you feel distant from God, how do you regenerate and revitalize your spirit and soul before God and find rest in Jesus? There may be diverse ways or means to do it, but I can say that no matter what your circumstances or situations are, the answer will come from God. You already have the answer. It is from God. It is God. You may feel God pushed you into the situation because he might not love you or take care of you. Even in the midst of your feelings, the answer to helping you get out of your uh, troubles will come from God. I actually never intended to work with the refugees, but the city I lived in was the first city the Syrian refugees resided after they crossed the border, and I lived in close contact with them. So my concern for their poor living conditions led me to become involved in these ministries. It made sense to me to do it, so I didn't even ask God if he would want me to do. Regardless, I did my best to serve them. Working with the Arab local Christians, I tried to regularly visit several refugee families during the week, help them financially, and share the gospel. The people I saw did not just leave their homes and countries, but also went through unimaginable tragedies such as members, family members' deaths, being wounded, their homes being destroyed, and more than we can imagine. Whenever I heard their stories, I felt very sorry and sad because I felt powerless and helpless that I could not do anything for them. But as time went on, to be honest, my spirit became weary weary of listening to their sad stories and tragedies. Some people even wanted to take advantage of me, so whenever they saw me, they always talked about how difficult their situations were and sometimes told lies to get money or extra help. On top of that, 
In my opinion, I try to do everything to train and help local Christian partners to grow in their faith and to reach out to the refugees, but they did not follow my expectations and it seemed that they just did what they wanted to do. So I was getting tired of everything. One day, I visited a family, as usual, who lived in a very dirty house. When a little girl, around four or five years old, saw me, she ran out to me with a smile. She wanted to hug me and sit on my lap. Although I hugged her and sat with her, I did not, now I understand why, Henny. <laughs> I did not want to hold her tightly with my heart because she had a foul odor with runny nose and touched my face with her dirty hands. I winced, which I was shocked at me. Shocked at myself and severely disappointed at the same time. I felt like I was leading a two-faced life as a hypocrite and felt tremendous guilt and shame as a missionary. My spirituality was not deep, too shallow to deal with others' sufferings and tragedies and their tough situations. I couldn't continue my ministries with these thoughts, so I put a hold on my ministries and prayed and questioned God for my attitude. Later, God taught me that mission does not come from my passion or my superficial, superficial concerns for people and their issues, but from his heart. My ministry would be just an act or event unless I have his heart towards these people or issues. Then God remind me of Acts 1 and 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. For a long time, I understood the verse, receive the power of the Holy Spirit as receiving certain spiritual gifts, capability, power, boldness, discernment, or whatever I needed to do God's work. But receiving the power of the Holy Spirit is also to receive the heart of God, his love, his agony, and even his grief towards this world and these Syrian refugees in my context. I've also realized that Jesus worked not just by divine power, but by his divine characteristics following Father's heart. That's why he could continuously minister and embody the presence of the kingdom of God in his earthly life and ministry. I used to ask God the ways to serve refugees and local Christians, training them or supplying their needs. But I never thought I would respect refugees as the bearer of the image of God and be united with the local Christians as the body of Christ.
to receive the heart of God, his love and agony towards the people, and to receive the power of being united with the people in Jesus were the keys to finding rest for me at that time. We all have personal issues, relationships, and matters to make us tired and become wearisome. I hope you, you would be humble on every problem you face and wait for God until he pour out his spirit and power on you to have the same heart as God. Surely he will be only your answer. <laughs>